0: And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 3rd, 2019. We're going to be continuing with uh, the uh, replay of Phil Johnson's series on a survey of historical heresies. Today, prominent heresy that a lot of people don't even know the name of it, Socinianism. Say that ten times fast. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, (gasps) self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, Whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God? Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, and it's just generally a mess is the best way I can put it. Now, uh, like I said at the beginning of the program, today we'll be doing a light episode. We're listening to this good lecture and it's part of a series. Uh, we uh, did the Pelagian heresy a couple of weeks ago and uh, we'll do Socinianism this week and then we'll start in on the Gnostics, then the Judaizers and then the Arian heresy. I just will do these uh in, you know, kind of Rosebro's order. But uh let's get to it. Here is part 1 of uh, Phil Johnson's Surveys of Historical Heresies, the
1: Socinians. Here we go. As we've studied these ancient heresies, you've, you may have noticed that we've been following a kind of chronological order. The legalism of the Judaizers hit the church in the first century, before the close of the canon even. And then hard on the heels of that, Gnosticism, ravaged the church in the 2nd century from the 2nd through the 6th centuries. Arianism began in the 4th century, had its heyday through the middle of the 5th century and on beyond that. Pelagianism started at the very beginning of the 5th century, and it has reared its ugly head again and again throughout the church in one form or another ever since. Now we call these ancient heresies because they are so old, but that's a little bit misleading. These are not ancient errors in the sense that they belong only to ancient history. Not one of these errors has ever been completely eradicated. Every one of them is alive and well in some form today. And in fact, uh, let me give you this. I hate to take time, but I don't think I've actually done this. And I kind of want to go through and give you the modern parallels to these errors. So I'm going to try to write on this and warning, my writing is practically illegible. The Judaizers... There are several modern forms of legalism that parallel the legalism of the Judaizers. I would think, uh, first of all, of Roman Catholicism, which has a healthy dose of legalism in it, and some of the same errors that you find in Galatian legalism you see repeated in Roman Catholicism. Also, I would list under this category Seventh-day Adventism. Also, uh, I would say, I would put in this one, the Worldwide Church of God. That's W-W-C-O-G. The Worldwide Church of God. This uh, cult that was started by Herbert W. Armstrong and has made several major strides in recent years, abandoning their Arianism, abandoning some of their errors, but there's still a bit of legalism in that group, uh, even to this day. Gnosticism, I think I mentioned when we studied this, Gnosticism, strains of Gnosticism live today in the New Age movement, Also, there are some Gnostic tendencies in various aspects of the charismatic movement. So I'm going to put it down here, even though some of my charismatic friends would be offended at that. um, You remember that one of the the attributes of Gnosticism is this belief that there is a secret knowledge that you sort of have to be initiated into and so on. You find this in some charismatic groups. uh, They take their charismatic doctrine to the extreme where it becomes virtually a kind of Gnosticism. Arianism, that's easy. Who's the modern counterpart? The Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Pelagians, we see in several formats, I would say some of the extreme holiness groups, extreme holiness sects. Let me make sure I get all these others. Anyone who follows closely, Charles Finney and Finney's theology, and I mentioned that there's great revival of interest in Charles Finney and his theology today. That's a revival of Pelagianism. And also, I'll put an asterisk on this one, because I know that my Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic friends would dispute this, but there are strains of semi-Pelagianism in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and I'll just let you sort of ponder that for a while. You've got the handout that's the same thing. And while my eyes try to readapt to the light, the heresy that we're going to be talking about is Socinianism, the last of these five. This is without a doubt the most widespread of all of these heresies today. As we sit here this morning, there are thousands of congregations all over the Los Angeles area that are Socinian. They wouldn't use the name Socinian but that is what they are. I'm talking about liberal Christianity. Liberal theology is, modern liberalism is nothing more than a form of Socinianism. A hundred years or so ago, it was called modernism. For the century before that, Socinium was, Socinianism was uh, chiefly associated with Unitarianism, but it's all a kind of Socinianism. Socinianism has infiltrated Christianity and taken control of virtually all the mainline denominations. Now let me give you a little bit of historical background on the origins of Socinianism, and then I'll go into some more detail about what Socinianism is. Socinianism was born almost immediately after the start of the Protestant Reformation. Socinianism takes its name from two Italian guys, who started it all. These were Lelius and Faustus Socinius. I'll spell it for you. Lelius is L-A-E-L-I-U-S. Lelius. Oh, it's on here, so I don't have to spell it. But I put Sozini there because they're Italian, and that's how they spelled their name, Sozini. And uh, you might look at, if I, didn't, if I wasn't afraid of offending my Italian friends, I'd say that Lelius was the godfather of Socinianism. <laughs> These were not father and son, but uncle and nephew, by the way. Laelius was the uncle and Faustus was the nephew. And both of these men were disaffected with Roman Catholicism. But unlike the Protestant reformers, the Socinians ended up rejecting everything that Roman Catholicism believed, including everything that was Orthodox. And since they rejected everything Catholic, the Socinians ended up with a doctrine that is virtually an amalgamation of every error that had ever assaulted the church. See, everything that Roman Catholicism had rejected, they pretty much embraced. And for this reason, I would regard Socinianism as the most serious and deadly of all the heresies that we have looked at so far, simply because it compiles them all into one big, huge heresy. It's the pinnacle of heresy, or you might say it's really the bottom of the barrel, You cannot go much further into heresy than Socinianism and still have the remnants of anything that would be called Christian in your system. Socinianism is virtually rank unbelief, retaining the name Christian while it rejects virtually everything that is distinctive to Christianity. Now, Laelius Socinius was born in Italy in about 1525. That, If you know your history, that was just about the time that the Protestant Reformation was beginning in Germany. And he was born in Italy. And by the time he grew up, the Reformation had made it to Italy. And he became interested in studying theology. And he met up with some of the original Protestants in Venice. And from there, he was introduced to Protestantism. And so he decided to travel into Europe which he did, and spent many years traveling in uh, Switzerland, Germany, Poland, and he met and became friends with several of the great reformers. He personally knew Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, Luther's sort of best friend and right-hand man. He was personally acquainted with Heinrich Bullinger, which was another of the famous Protestant reformers. And he also was a personal acquaintance of John Calvin. Now, all the reformers were kind of wary of Laelius, Socinius, and his theology. Calvin, in particular, was annoyed because Laelius had this style of questioning everything. This was his thing. This is what he was known for. He questioned everything. Rather than simply denying what he rejected and asserting what he believed, Laelius' approach was just to question everything, to constantly ask these annoying questions. And it's clear, for example, from the personal papers that he left behind, that he, early on, denied the Trinity. He decided early on that he was not Trinitarian. He made that decision, and yet he didn't come out and state it. Instead, he questioned that doctrine of the Trinity every chance he got. He became known for the questions that he asked, questions that were really subtle attacks on the truth. Now, John Calvin got so fed up with Lelius' questioning that he wrote him this letter. I have this book of... uh, a of, collection of letters from John Calvin. And Calvin wrote to uh, Laelius Socinius this letter, and I'm going to quote from it. It was actually written in Latin, but this is the English translation. He says to him, "'You need not expect me to reply to all the monstrous questions you propose to me. "'If you are gratified by floating around in such high-minded speculations, "'I pray you permit me, a humble disciple of Christ, "'to meditate on those things which tend to the edification of my faith.'" And hereafter, Calvin says, by my silence, I will indeed accomplish the thing that I wish for, that you no longer annoy me in this way. Don't you love that? That sounds like I've written some letters like that. (laughs) Calvin went on in that same letter to say this. He said, I must again seriously repeat what I warned you of long ago, that unless you speedily correct this itching after investigation, it may bring upon you such mischief... I would be cruel if, with a show of indulgence, I were to encourage this vice in you, which I believe to be spiritually hurtful to you. So Calvin was quite frank with Socinius and essentially said, Stop asking these questions. It's nothing more than a form of skepticism. You're, you're actually harming yourself spiritually because what you are doing is doubting. Now, as far as we know, Laelius Socinius published nothing in his life. He was little more than a kind of a gadfly who hovered around the great reformers, quietly attempting to sow the seeds of skepticism and infidelity among them. That was what he was doing. And ultimately, he returned to Italy where he did what was his greatest legacy, and that is he began to influence his own nephew, Faustus. And when Laelius died, Faustus Socinus inherited his uncle's personal papers, and those papers formed the basis of Faustus's theological training. Everything he knew about theology, he got from his uncle Laelius' papers. And I mentioned that Laelius's papers revealed that he was anti-Trinitarian. Here's an interesting fact. During Laelius's time in Europe, he, he caused many people to wonder if he was attacking the Trinity, and there were people who accused him of being anti-Trinitarian, but he denied that. He said, no, I'm not anti-Trinitarian. And he actually met with Heinrich Bullinger, one of the great reformers, over this very issue. And Bullinger examined him to see if he was sound on the doctrine of the, of the Trinity. And Laelius was able to convince Bullinger that he held to sound doctrine. But the papers that he left Faustus make it very clear that Laelius had actually abandoned the Trinity early on. So this raises a fair question about Laelius' basic integrity. It becomes evident that he was really a dishonest man, concealing what he really believed, and content merely to sow the seeds of doubt in the minds of others by these incessant and annoying questions that he asked. Now, it was Faustus who developed Socinianism into a full-fledged system, and it became a kind of liberal Unitarianism, starting with this rejection of the Trinity. Socinianism became a Unitarian and liberal theology. Faustus not only denied the Trinity, he didn't stop there, but he also denied the authority of Scripture, and he especially denied all the miracles of Scripture. You remember the Sadducees of the New Testament era? Scripture tells us that the Sadducees denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They, they seemed to have a skepticism about everything supernatural, Laelius and Faustus Socinus both took this skepticism of the Sadducees and married it with the humanistic rationalism of the Enlightenment era, and it was this skepticism and rationalism that gave birth to the heresy of Socinus. Now listen carefully. This is is not complex. You just need to understand these two ideas. Rationalism and skepticism, they are the two philosophies that lie at the heart of Socinianism. Rationalism, is the view that makes human reason the highest test of truth. That's rationalism. Makes human reason the highest test of truth. That's not hard to remember, is it? Skepticism is a doctrine that says that absolute knowledge, real knowledge, is utterly impossible. You can't really know anything for sure. That's skepticism. Now, if you marry skepticism with rationalism, what you have is the philosophical basis for Socinianism. That's what this doctrine is. It's sort of Christianized unbelief. Both rationalism and skepticism are so much the driving force of our age. This is what drives modern thought, that these don't sound like novel ideas to us. But if you could put yourself in the mindset of a 16th century person, these were shocking ideas. This was an extremely radical way of thinking. Now, let me say this plainly, because it it has to be said in a modern audience, and that is this. Both skepticism and rationalism are antithetical to Christianity. These are non-Christian ways of thinking, skepticism and rationalism both. Christianity teaches that there is truth that is certain. That's at the heart of Christianity. There is truth that is certain, and that truth, is this essential truth, is revealed by God's Word, and it must be believed for salvation. So that rules out skepticism. Furthermore, Christianity also teaches that the revealed Word of God is the highest standard of truth. Everything must be tested by Scripture. And anything that's contrary to Scripture cannot be believed cannot be received as true, and that rules out rationalism. So in other words, the philosophical basis of Socinianism is anti-Christian. This is an anti-Christian religion. Now let's see what Socinianism does to Christianity, and I want to highlight for you four errors of Socinianism, and I think you'll see that this heresy, Socinianism, utterly destroys everything that is distinctive about Christianity. First of all, it nullifies the Word of God. It nullifies the authority of God's Word. Let's say it like that. It nullifies the authority of the, of the Word of God. Now remember that this is the starting point for Socinianism. This heresy starts by making Scripture subservient to human reason. And if human reason is supreme then Scripture really has no authority whatsoever over the human mind. It's as simple as that. If you make human reason supreme over Scripture, then Scripture cannot have authority over the human mind. Now, those of you that know me very well at all would know that I would be the last person in the world to denigrate sound reason by saying that reason must be subject to Scripture. I am not saying that we should dispense with reason altogether. That's also an error. I am most certainly not arguing for a system that throws logic out the window. I have absolutely no patience with people who think that faith and reason are somehow contrary to one another. Certain kinds of Christianity like to demean logic and glorify absurdities. The modern charismatic movement often does this. Portrays reason as if it were antithetical to faith. This is also true of modern neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodox Christians who think that Christianity is full of contradictions and faith means you embrace these absurdities as if they were true. That's what neo-orthodoxy teaches. I disagree. Scripture disagrees. That is irrationalism. And irrationalism is just as much a heresy as rationalism is. Just so we're clear on that. The truth is that Scripture is supreme over human reason. But Scripture itself establishes and affirms all the fundamental rules of sound logic. Scripture tells us, for example, that truth never contradicts itself. Scripture says that God is truth, and God cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Titus 1.2 says, God cannot lie. So whatever is the antithesis of truth must be false. That's a basic principle of logic called the the law of non-contradiction. And all the basic rules of logic are affirmed in Scripture this way. So Scripture upholds logic and sound reason. In other words, Scripture and sound reason must work together to yield a right understanding of what is true. You can't throw out Scripture and you can't throw out reason. But reason is always subservient to Scripture and not the other way around. See, the error of neo-orthodoxy and the charismatic movement is that they throw out reason altogether. So Sinianism goes to the opposite extreme. It does away with the authority of Scripture and makes reason supreme. The truth is neither. The truth is that Scripture is authoritative and human reason is absolutely necessary. And we have to keep that balance. Now, if I seem to get all worked up by Socinianism, it's because I grew up in a Socinian church and I almost lost my soul to this heresy. I've mentioned this before, but when I was in high school, the pastor of the church where I attended asked me to come to his office once for a chat. This was a liberal, united Methodist church. It was thoroughly steeped in Socinianism from the top to the bottom. And this pastor himself was very much like Laelius Socinus. That is, he kept his real views quiet, and he subtly sowed seeds of skepticism by innuendo and by blowing the trumpet with an uncertain sound. And in fact, this is the methodology of virtually every Socinian I have ever encountered. They rarely come out and say what they believe, but they promote their heresy chiefly by sowing seeds of doubt and distrust. And as a teenager, I was struggling with what I was hearing in Sunday school. My Sunday school teacher was a committed Socinian, a skeptic, who constantly challenged the truth of Scripture in our Sunday school class. Constantly in our Sunday school class was teaching us that the Bible is nothing but mythology. I heard this Sunday after Sunday. And in the middle of one of those Sunday school classes, I made the comment that if the Bible is false... I didn't understand the point of studying it in Sunday school. I was unsophisticated enough to believe that if the Bible is just a collection of myths, then there's a better way to spend Sunday morning than in Sunday school. The better thing would be to be at home in front of the television watching the pre-game football shows, right? If the Bible's just myths. And I made up my mind then and there that if the Bible was true, I was going to treat it as true, and if not... I wasn't going to have anything at all to do with Christianity. So this pastor summoned me to his office, and he warned me that he thought I was flirting with fundamentalism. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I was just a teenager, and I had no Christian influences, no evangelical influences, and I'd never even heard of fundamentalism. But I knew from the tone of his voice that this was a bad thing, fundamentalism, right? (laughs) So he sat me down in his office, I remember this just like it was yesterday, and he took me on a whirlwind tour all the way through the Bible, showing me things that he said could not possibly be true. You know, the stuff like Elisha made the axe head float, and and Naaman was cleansed from his leprosy, and and the hand of God wrote on the wall, and all of these kinds of things. And he said, none of these things could literally be true. And he said, we're not expected to take them literally. Now this guy had an earned doctorate. And I was a high school student, so who was I to argue? And what he said seemed to make some sense to my unregenerate mind. I wasn't a Christian at the time. But I'd grown up thinking that we're supposed to believe the Bible, what the Bible says. I believe Jesus was a real person. This is what I'd always been taught. And all of this skepticism that he was throwing at me was a shock to my mind. So I asked him, I remember asking him, does all this... He was going through all these Old Testament examples, you know. and, And I... I began to think, well, what about Jesus? Does this apply to Jesus too? And so I asked him as plainly as I could. I said, what about all Jesus' miracles? What about where the people he healed and the loaves and fishes and and when he walked on water and all of that? Is that stuff just allegory too? Now, this man was a highly esteemed pastor at the United Methodist Church, and there's no way he ever would have admitted from the pulpit that he believed the Gospels were fairy tales. But there, in the privacy of his office, he told me what he really believed. He said that all those stories were like elaborate fables. He said, you know the man with the withered hand? Jesus said, stretch forth your hand and it was healed. He said, now this, here's what undoubtedly happened. He said, this guy heard Jesus teaching that if your right hand offends you, you should cut it off. Matthew 5, verse 30. And this man had probably sinned somehow with his hand. Maybe he stole something or something like that. And in obedience to Jesus' teaching, he bound up his hand and stopped using it. He probably had it like tied to his side, and he was walking around like this, refusing to use his hand because he had sinned with it. And Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. And so when Jesus found him and realized what he was doing, he forgave him of his sins, and he said, stretch forth your hand. And he was basically giving this guy permission to use his sinful hand again. He said this was not a literal healing. And I went hmm. And I thought this sounds very profound, you know, as a high school student I'm listening to this doctor of divinity tell me about this and it did sound very profound. And I thought, wow, you know, I never thought about it. this is so deep. <laughs> and I would come up with another miracle. I didn't know the Bible very well, so I couldn't think of very many of them. But He went through, and every miracle that I brought up, he explained them all away using that same sort of reinterpretation by allegory. And I'm sitting there in his office, and I swallowed it all. I thought, well, it makes sense to me. Sounds good. I'm listening to this with an unbelieving mind. And it wasn't until I got home and really began to think this through that it dawned on me what all of this really meant. And the one thing that I forgot to ask him about was the resurrection. What about the resurrection? That would have been a great question to ask him. These days I know enough about Socinianism that I can tell you what he would have told me. All Socinians will give you pretty much the same answer. They'll say that it is irrelevant whether the details of the gospel are historical facts or not. What really matters is the moral lessons that they contain. To a Socinian, you see, it really doesn't matter whether Jesus was born of a virgin, whether he really rose from the dead. What's really important to the Socinian is what he taught. And not everything he taught, but only the moral and ethical standards, the life principles. That's what it boils down to. And above all this, the message of love. God's love for humanity, and especially humanity's love for one another. You see how this all becomes very... Man centered. It's all about God's love for humanity and humanity's love for humanity, and very quickly, Jesus becomes irrelevant and humanity becomes supreme. Not only that, the scriptures become completely irrelevant. You see, if Socinianism is true, then the scriptures are nothing but fables, unreliable, filled with errors, and really, the Bible then would be more of an impediment to the truth than a reliable source of truth. If Socinianism is true, then the right thing for theologians to do, we'd all be better off if we just sort of went through the Bible and distilled the moral teachings of Scripture in a concise, simple document and then threw the rest of it away. Right? Right? you know that is exactly what modern Socinians are attempting to do? You've probably read about this Jesus seminar where they're going through the Bible and they're trying to decide what Jesus really taught and how much is just made up. And the sole test is human reason. Does this sound like something Jesus would teach? Basically, the question is, is it a moral teaching or is Jesus teaching something? Does, he, does it say he did something supernatural or whatever? If it says he healed a guy, they throw it out. If it says, love your neighbor, they say, well, that's genuine. Jesus really taught that. And it boils down to a very minuscule portion of Scripture that they accept. Primarily, only the moral lessons. And the rest of it, they want to treat as a historical oddity. Just something that's of interest to us only because it's a curiosity. This Jesus Seminar... And the quest for the historical Jesus and liberals like that represent Socinianism in its purest and most sinister form. That is Socinianism at its worst. All right, we're going to pause
0: right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash fire christian follow me on twitter my name there at fire christian we come back the balance of today's lecture on the socinian heresy by bill johnson stay tuned don't want to miss it we'll be right back peter james john
2: and paul are all dead that means there are no living apostles in the church today you're listening to fighting for the faith
3: This is
4: the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's Python's flying circus church.
0: For additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
4: Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth?
3: Jesus died to make us
4: rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? Ah! No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if um the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box <laughs> To err is to heretic, to R is to pirate.
0: Na-na-na-na-na-na-na. All alright we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Socinian heresy and liberalism have something in common, like a lot. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring fighting for the faith to into the world and you can partner with us It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can do so by making your gift payable too, Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture on a survey of historical heresies by Phil Johnson, and this is on the Socinian heresy. Here we go.
1: Now, let's move on. That's the first error of Socinianism, that it nullifies the authority of God's Word. The next two we don't have to dwell on because we've covered them when we study the other heresies. The second is this. It repudiates the deity of Christ. Now, what other heresy did we examine that repudiates the deity of Christ? Arianism. Arianism. And Socinianism has this in common with Arianism. It rejects the concept of Jesus' deity. Socinians do not believe that Jesus is eternally God. In fact, Socinianism in general rejects the doctrines of the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ. The Socinians make him a mere man, and a fallible one at that. And in doing this, Socinianism goes even further than Arianism. Because you remember the Arians were willing to make at least make Jesus the highest of archangels, right? No Arian would say that Jesus ever sinned, but Socinians go even further. And they can do this because they begin by rejecting the authority of Scripture, And therefore, it doesn't matter to them what what Scripture says about Jesus' sinlessness or anything about the person of Christ. They can make Jesus whoever they want him to be. And they've made him into a mere man. A good moral teacher, but a mere man. From the 18th century on, Socinianism in its most extreme form has gone by the name Unitarianism. And if you're familiar with the Unitarian movement in England and also in New England, then you have a pretty good grasp of what pure Socinianism can be. Unitarianism is the most rank liberal form of religion, often not even retaining any of the vestiges of Christianity. Now remember that Laelius Socinus himself began this Unitarian thrust when he denied the Trinity. And the bulk of the Socinian movement has followed him into one variety of Unitarianism or another. They all deny the Trinity, whether they admit it or not. Many modern theological liberals will tell you that they are Trinitarians, and they will insist that they are Trinitarians. But remember that Lelius Socinus also claimed to be a Trinitarian, and Socinianism is not Trinitarianism in any historical sense. Liberal theology rejects Trinitarianism. Even if they use the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even if they would affirm the formula, they reject Trinitarianism and invariably turn Jesus into a mere man. Just like Arianism. Worse than Arianism. All right, let me move on. The third serious error of Socinianism, it annuls the grace of God. It annuls the grace of God. Socinianism denies the fallenness of humanity and therefore it renders the grace of God unnecessary. We've seen the same thing in another heresy. Which one? Pelagianism. Remember, Pelagius denied the fallenness of humanity and therefore he made the grace of God unnecessary. Socinianism just swallows up Pelagianism whole. It is Pelagian. And I've pointed out as we've studied these heresies. I should have turned that off, but as long as it's on, you see in this third column here, all these heresies, and I've pointed this out a couple of times, they are either Christological or soteriological. That means the Christological heresies set forth a, a false Christ, the wrong Christ. The soteriological heresies set forth the wrong gospel. And every heresy represents one or the other. Socinianism is both. Socinianism has the wrong Christ and the wrong gospel. Arianism really represents the height of Christological heresy. Pelagianism is sort of the consummate soteriological heresy. And Socinianism simply takes Arianism and Pelagianism and it melds them together in one monstrous heresy, the worst of both worlds. In fact, you might say that Socinianism is like the Borg of heresies, you know? Any heresy it encounters, it assimilates. And resistance is futile. If you're a fan of Star Trek, that makes sense. Otherwise, forget it. Now, since we've already examined the errors of Pelagianism and Arianism, I'm not going to elaborate on these two points this morning. But let me just say that everything that is wrong with Pelagianism also applies to Socinianism, and everything that we said to refute Arianism is equally applicable to this heresy. So let me move on to the final point, which is the one I want to stress. This is, in my estimation, Socinianism's most subtle and most serious danger. And that is, it obliterates the meaning of the cross. It obliterates the meaning of the cross. Now, when you find yourself in dialogue with a Socinian, and you want to get to the heart of the issue in your discussion, bring up the doctrine of the atonement. This is where Socinianism does the most damage, and this is where their theology utterly falls apart. Sadly, it's not an area where too many Christians are well-equipped to carry on a dialogue or even defend the faith. I found myself in this position as a teenager with the Socinian pastor that I mentioned. During that meeting in his office, he asked me this. He said, Do you believe that God was so angry with the human race that he would not be satisfied with anything less than the violent death of his own son? He said, do you believe it took the very blood of Christ to mollify God before God could quiet his wrath and be forgiving? He said, do you believe that God loathes the sinner so much that the only thing that could placate God was a blood sacrifice? He said, do you believe that God himself ordered the crucifixion of Christ as an expiation for sin? I had to admit that my concept of God was not quite like that. Those ideas sounded shocking to me. They are shocking. And I had been taught, like most of us, that God's governing attribute is His love. I believe that divine love basically overwhelmed and annulled God's wrath against sin. I thought that love simply canceled out wrath. It was as simple as that. Do you realize... That idea is part of the Socinian heresy. Socinianism does this to God. It reduces Him to one attribute only, love. But Scripture teaches no such thing. God's wrath is not abrogated by God's love. God worked out a way to save us that would keep both His wrath and His love unviolated, both intact. God's goodness does not make void His absolute holiness. His mercy doesn't mean that He suspends His righteousness. And I had a faulty view of God. A lot of people today have a faulty view of God. So Sinianism is based on a faulty view of God. Our understanding of the nature of God and our understanding of the nature of the atonement must be framed by Scripture and by Scripture alone. And this is not a secondary doctrine. We're not here talking about some doctrine that's just peripheral. This is the very heart of the gospel, the doctrine of the atonement. It sums up everything that is at the heart of Christianity. But unfortunately, millions of Christians in the 20th century have never taken the time to understand what the atonement is all about, and consequently, most Christians today are unable to respond to the argument of the Socinians. This is a tragedy. Now, I'm going to give you a crash course in the atonement. Biblically, there are two important aspects of the atoning work of Christ that that I want to focus on. It's really broader than this. But these two things that you have to bear in mind. On the one hand, it involves the payment of a price. The payment of a price. Now, there are several biblical terms that underscore this for us. One is the word ransom. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says this, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Now, a lot of people think this means that Christ's blood was paid as a ransom price to Satan. That is not what it means. Satan is not in a position to demand any payment for sins. The reason we owe a price for our sins is because our sin is has offended the perfect righteousness of God. It's God who we have offended, not Satan. It's God's righteousness that demands the price, not Satan. And the ransom that's spoken of in the atonement is a price that is paid to satisfy the perfect righteousness of God. That's what Scripture teaches. There's another biblical word that underscores this same truth. It's the word propitiation. You come across that, you're reading 1 John, it's in there two times. It's also in Romans 3, propitiation. I remember seeing that and thinking, I can't even pronounce that, much less say what it is. But it's not a hard word. You find it in 1 John 2.2. 2. It says this, He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You also find the same word in Romans 3.25. God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, what is this word propitiation? sounds like a technical term, but it's really not that hard. It's a synonym for satisfaction. That's all it means. It refers to the fact that God's justice, God's wrath, God's perfect holiness, these were satisfied by the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, this is a crucial doctrine. If you deny it, you've denied true Christianity. Propitiatory atonement sounds like a theological, technical term, but what it really means is that Christ's death satisfied the demands of God's righteousness. Anything that denies that is not true Christianity. Another way to say it is this. We believe that the atonement is substitutionary. It's substitutionary. We believe that Christ died in our place and in our stead he paid the sin, the, the price of sin on our behalf. It's substitutionary. And biblically, this is very much at the heart of what the word atonement means. It involves the payment of a price. But I said there's two aspects of the atonement. First is the payment of a price. The second is the remission of sins. Acts 10.43 uses this term. Whoever believeth in him shall receive... Remission of sins. Now, what does remission mean? Again, it sounds too technical. It's simply a synonym for forgiveness. Remission of sins involves forgiveness. Now, here is how the Socinians argued. Follow this. It's really really a simple argument. They claimed that these two ideas, the payment of the price on one hand and the forgiveness of sins on the other, are mutually exclusive. They said that sins can either be remitted or they can be atoned for. But not both. They said if a price is paid, then the sins aren't really forgiven. And if God is willing to pardon sin and forgive us, then no price is necessary. Right? In fact, the Socinians argued that if a price is demanded, then it's not really grace. They said it's more like a legal transaction, like, like the payment of a traffic ticket. Now, you can see the subtlety of that argument. But there's a major problem with it. It is absolutely contrary to what Scripture teaches about grace, about atonement, and about divine justice. What the Socinians have done is formulate their definition of atonement on terms that are devised by human reason, and they've utterly ignored what the Word of God has to say about it. We know from Scripture that grace is not incompatible with the payment of a ransom. Because... Here's, here's where grace comes in. Grace comes in before the payment of the price. It was by grace that God determined to pay the price Himself on our behalf. That's where the grace comes in. The payment of the price is itself an act of grace. In fact, it's the consummate expression of divine grace that God willingly sent His Son to die for sinners who didn't deserve it. That's John 3.16. That is grace. That's grace. Furthermore, if you read what Scripture has to say about the forgiveness of sins, you'll see very quickly that the shedding of Christ's blood is the only ground on which sins may be forgiven. This is the very thing that the Socinian doctrine of the atonement denies. But look how clearly Scripture affirms it. I'll, I'll give you a few verses here. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. Jesus said this, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You see, he grounds the remission of sins on the basis of the shedding of the blood. The forgiveness is a result of the payment of the price. They're not two opposing ideas. They're two ideas that absolutely depend on one another. Another verse, Romans 3.25. And this is one that would be worth your study. We can't really go in depth to it here. But Romans 3.25, I already quoted it earlier, says, God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood for the remission of sins that are past. You see? There's both the idea of propitiation and remission. And the argument of Paul in Romans 3 is this, that God cannot righteously forgive sins unless the price is paid. That's the whole argument of Pauline theology. One depends on the other. And in fact, let me give you one last verse that makes this point. And this one makes the truth... Absolutely inescapable. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You see, that absolutely flies in the face of the Socinian argument. The Socinians say, if you shed blood, then it's not really remission. Scripture says the opposite. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Was Christ's death on the cross Absolutely necessary to satisfy the wrath of God against sin? Do, do we worship a God whose wrath would not be satisfied without the shedding of blood? What's the answer to that question? Yes! Yes! Don't let anyone intimidate you into thinking that Christianity, that this makes Christianity an unsophisticated or primitive religion. This is expressly what Scripture teaches, that Christ died in our place. And as he hung there on the cross, He bore the full wrath of God on our behalf. It was God who decreed and who orchestrated the events of the crucifixion. Acts 2.23 says Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53.10 says it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That's a hard verse, isn't it? It pleased the Lord to crush him. That same verse also says that Jehovah made his servant, quote, An offering for sin, unquote. Scripture teaches this from the beginning to the end. In fact, this is the gist of the whole book of Hebrews as well. Hebrews 10.4. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Verse 10. But we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12 says that what he did was offer one sacrifice for sins forever. Now, very clearly, all those verses are teaching that Christ was sacrificed as a blood atonement to meet the demands of God's righteousness. Do you find that a shocking truth? It is shocking, and it's profound. It ought to put us on our faces before God. What do you think about when you ponder the death of Christ on the cross? So Sinianism says he was basically a martyr, a victim of humanity. Put to death at the hands of evil men. And the evil in the cross, according to Socinian, is that wicked hands put Christ to death. And that's why he suffered. He was a martyr. But Scripture says the opposite. Scripture says he is the Lamb of God. A victim of what? Divine wrath. That's what the cross means. And what made Christ's suffering on the cross so difficult for him to bear, was not merely the taunting and the torture and the abuse he got from evil men. What, what he really bore was the weight of divine fury against sin. Jesus' sufferings were not merely the pain of whips and nails and thorns and, and human taunts. By far, the most excruciating agony Christ bore was the penalty of sin on our behalf, and that's the meaning of the cross. If you take that away, you destroy the meaning of the cross. In this truth lies the very nerve of Christianity. This is absolutely essential to what we believe. It means that our sins were imputed to Christ, and He bore the awful price as our substitute. And for that reason... His righteousness is imputed to all who believe, and they stand before God spotless, clothed in the white garment of His perfect righteousness. Scripture says this. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God has made Christ to be sin for us. Think about that. God made Him to be sin. Now, that would be a shocking truth to Socinian ears, but that is clearly what Scripture teaches again and again. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the whole basis of our salvation. Let me ask you the same series of questions that that Socinian pastor asked me. Do you believe that God was angry, so angry with the human race that He would not be satisfied by anything less than the violent death of His own Son? The answer is absolutely yes, Psalm 711. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Scripture clearly teaches that. Verses 12 and 13, And if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Second question, do you believe that it took the very blood of Christ to mollify God before He could quiet that wrath? And be forgiving? Do you believe that God loathes the sinner so much that the only thing that could placate Him was a blood sacrifice? Absolutely yes. Hebrews 9.22, Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Leviticus 17.11, It is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Last question. Do you believe that God Himself ordered the crucifixion of Christ as an expiation for sin? Yes! Yes! 1 John 4.10, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3.25, God has set Him forth to be a propitiation for our sins. Acts 2.23, Christ was delivered by the determinant foreknowledge and counsel of God. You see, over and over again, this is the plain teaching of Scripture. It is the Gospel. This is the Gospel. In fact, this and this alone is true Christianity. So Sinianism errs at the very beginning when it subjugates the Word of God to human reason. Because if we do not allow the Word of God to inform our thinking on these issues, there's no way we'll ever think rightly about them. And if we don't think rightly about them, we're doomed. It's that cut and dried. Well, I've gone over time. Let me just close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study this heresy which sets in bold relief for us the truth of the Gospel the very opposite of this heresy that we're talking about, the truth of Your Word. And we do fall on our faces before You in gratitude for the work that Christ did on our behalf, for Your inestimable love that stooped to pay such a penalty on our behalf. And we confess that we don't deserve it. We confess that we are fallen and we are sinful. And we owe everything in our lives to Your grace. Help us to keep that in mind as we... Live our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.